Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you all for listening and downloading and subscribing. I really appreciate it. And as promised, today is part two of my discussion with Dr. Kenny Veneer and Dr. Kyle Ridgway. Kyle is a senior physical therapist at University of Colorado Hospital and coordinator of physical therapy quality improvement project in the medical intensive care unit. Kenny is a home health physical therapist at Intermountain Healthcare in Salt Lake City, Utah. So we had part one of our conversation that came out on Monday. If you didn't listen to part one, I highly suggest you go back and listen to that. Uh, You don't necessarily have to listen to part one before you listen to part two, but I think there are some times when we do refer back to what we spoke about in part one. So be prepared to kind of go back and listen to listen to it if you haven't already. So in this episode, we discuss, is physical therapy science-based? Why we should breed a culture of skepticism in physical therapy? And if you follow either Kyle or Kenny on social media, or you read their blogs, Kyle at PT Think Tank and Kenny at Physiological PT, you'll definitely see a little bit of skepticism in there. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, Fad treatments and why practitioners are attracted to them, and Kyle and Kenny's passion for the science behind physical therapy, plus a lot more. And you definitely get that passion from both of them uh, in this conversation, at least I did. Um, And if you want to follow them on Twitter, you want to get the talking points from the debate on dry needling, which we talk a little bit about here, and we talked a little bit in part one, uh, links to physiological PT or PT think tank, uh, then by all means, head over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, click on the show notes for part two of our discussion, and you'll have a direct link right to all of that info. So again, I want to thank you all for tuning in, and a huge thanks to Kyle and Kenny for sticking it out for like... We talked for hours. I mean, there was a lot of discussion here. So thanks to both of them for sticking it out and creating two really great podcasts. So everyone enjoy this episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back for part two of my conversation with Kyle Ridgway and Kenny Veneer. And if you did, if you missed part one, definitely go back and listen to it. We just released it on Monday. And in part one, we did talk about the, tri- the dry needling debate at CSM. We talked about how to think about the physical therapist's role in the opioid crisis and also how to have better communication between a home health therapist and acute care therapist. So if you missed that, definitely go back and listen to that and then come back to this. Or you can listen to this first and then go to that. It's up to you, really. Okay, so Kyle, Kenny, thank you. Welcome back. You can say... Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, All right. So let's dive right into Lars Avemarie's question. And it is, how do we move the physio field forward towards a more science-based focus? So Kenny, why don't you take this one first? Well, I think that's a great question. It's an exciting one. And I think it's something that Kyle and I are passionate about and have written on in the past on our, our blogs there. Um, I think the first thing is is at the 
student level, the university education level, we have to have a bigger foundation in basic scientific literacy, um, understanding the scientific method, improving critical thinking about our reasoning, our interventions, the decisions we make in practice. I think it's important that we expand our understanding of what evidence-based practice is, what it isn't, how to define it, how to implement it into clinical practice. And that's something Kyle and I hope to do with one of the CSM sessions we submitted for 2018 in New Orleans. <clears throat> so I think it starts with students. I think it's something that's going to change with generations as we foster a more engaged physical therapy community, community in things like research and understanding the, the nuts and bolts of science. So I'll give that kind of big picture view and let Kyle dive in a little bit more and get an organic conversation going about this one because I think it's a big topic. Yeah, um, yeah, I agree with I agree with your general kind of umbrella overview there, Kenny. And I think the the undercurrent to Laura's question is the implication that maybe physical therapy is not science based. And so I think I will take off my usual brand and give the physical therapy profession its due. And that you know we have a seat at the medical table. We're in the medical profession. Uh, most within the medical profession would say that we are quote-unquote science-based or at least research-based or reality-based, no one would lump us in with CAM providers. And I think we've cleared that hurdle. And I think that's important to get out on the table immediately is that this implication that maybe we're not science-based, um, I, I would want to put to bed a little bit. But to, to Lars's main point, which I think is we're not as good as we could be. And I think that's always the case uh, in medicine writ large, healthcare, any of the professions. And so how do we continue to grow and pivot in the right ways? And I think the thing that I've observed is that physical therapy from a continuing development standpoint, from a continuing education standpoint, because of some potentially preserve, perverse incentives and the way that our continuing education model is structured, it lends itself to guruism. And historically, knowledge and expertise and courses has been passed down not based on validity or through some rigorous peer review but based on you know can you market do you have a big name and do you draw a lot of people to your courses and those approaches draw a lot of followers so to your point kenny i would agree wholeheartedly that this is foundationally an educational problem right and i think this this starts well before pt school because Unfortunately, once people get to the graduate school level, we're trying to undo or redo things that may have gone wrong in education all the way up to the graduate school level. So I think we've opened Pandora's box and the, the breadth and depth of this problem is way bigger than we ever would have thought. And it, it does go to scientific literacy. It goes to the ability to analyze claims, to analyze data, to have a good foundation in basic sciences, which... Unfortunately, many of our students do not. And this is this is not a, a, a rip on DPT students, but the fact that the majority of the students that I interact with have a background in quote unquote exercise science, you know, I have colleagues that all they're trying to do is improve the undergraduate curriculum of exercise science and general biomechanics. And they tell me that the level of training in reality here is worse than we could even imagine. So Students are coming in potentially at a scientific disadvantage, right? So 
what type of majors are we encouraging pre-DPT students to pursue, I think would be the first issue. And secondarily, what type of students are we admitting may be another issue, right? Why are we not admitting more students from the hard sciences? Why are we not admitting more philosophy majors? Why are we not drawing these people in or encouraging pre-DPT students to go into that? But then to the point of the DPT student level, education is, you know, we've got to get some things more right, right? We need to be better at bringing in the people who can teach us what I call that triangulation of physical therapy practice, which I will continue to tout as physics, physiology, and psychology, right? And if you pivot to med schools, the people giving the lecture on the nervous system are rarely neurologists, not because neurologists don't know the nervous system, but because they say, let's bring in the neurophysiologist, let's bring in the neuroanatomist to teach this, right? How come we're not learning uh, biomechanics from bioengineers and actual mechanists? Why are we not learning psychology from clinical psychologists? Why are we not learning principles of counseling from counselors? Why are we not learning physiology from physiologists, right? And that's no knock on DPD student educators who work their butts off, underpaid, underappreciated, just like most in our field. But the flip side is then once you graduate, what happens, right? The, the classic graduating tenant at any med school or health scientist school is 50% of what we taught you will be wrong in f- 10 years or five years or whatever it is. And I always pivot that to say we'll be understood differently. And I think it goes to our continuing education culture, which, again, is not driven on true competence or validity. It's, it's driven on marketing. And that comes with all the marketing uh, buzzwords or things that get people excited. What's new and innovative? What's novel? What are things that other people aren't doing? I think that drives a lot of fads in physical therapy. So I think we can reverse engineer it to where we prepare students to, quite frankly, to, to weed out the bullshit. But then we also set up the continuing education system to maybe have a little bit better peer review. And unfortunately, scientifically, we're a young discipline. You don't go to our conferences and see people arguing at a very, very high level, right? I mean, if you go to a true scientific conference, if you go to a neuroscience conference, you're about as likely, and this is not a quote of mine, I'll attribute this to Sam Harris, you're about as likely to see um, just outright salesmanship as you are to see nudity. People are just left and right hedging their bets. I'm sure there's someone in the audience who knows this more than me. I'm, you know, I'm not exactly the expert on this one thing, but I do know a lot about this thing, right? You go to a physical therapy conference, that's not the case, right? We're not arguing in this way. So we're, we're scientifically not yet mature. And that's, again, no fault of our own. And I think many other disciplines are struggling with this. So I, I don't think it's a unique problem to physical therapy. I think it's just exacerbated because we're a little younger than some of the other scientific and medical disciplines. Um, but I, th- I think they have the same problems. Um, so I think we approach it from two tails, the educational system pre-professional and then the incentives and vetting of continuing education post-professional. And those two things will feed back to each other. But there's some programs that are doing this very well. Um, I can't remember exactly the programs. I think it's Northwestern. I think Pitt are now offering dual DPT master's or PhD programs in bioengineering. So the time is coming. And my colleagues, Matt Shremba and Paul Motowski have talked about this. The time is coming where you will be at CSM and you will say something and a PhD in bioengineering will raise their hand and say, actually, you can't say that. Let's go back to slide 23.4. That's actually wrong. And here's why. And I think that's what we need. I think that's what we need. Yeah, absolutely. I think piggybacking off of uh, 
some of the things you said. And, and going back into part one, we talked about culture, culture of communication between acute care and home health physical therapists. We also need a culture in physical therapy that is skeptical, a culture that is comfortable with engaging in argument and debate and making sure that we understand argument in the scientific sense, not the the connotation it often has is when you argue, you picture two people screaming at each other and not really getting anything done, any headway. But scientific argument is using science and logic and reason and evidence to examine the validity of certain claims. And with skepticism, skepticism, I think it's a bad rap because people think, again, it's this culture of doubt where you automatically assume the negative, assume that something has been disproven or is bullshit, as Kyle said. But really what it is, it's an agnostic position. It's something that, so this, going back to our dry needling debate, if you're skeptical about dry needling, you're taking the position that dry needling may be not proven. The evidence isn't there. Not that it's been disproven or Mm. it's been completely ruled out, So I think that's a misconception we have that really contributes to a barrier we have as being a more science-based profession. We don't really proportion our beliefs to what we know about the evidence on a certain treatment or the biology or the plausibility of a certain treatment. We proportion it to what we see every day in the clinic. We see a certain treatment work. We want patients to get better. I think that's why everyone is in physical therapy because they want to help people. We all have very good intentions. We want these interventions. We've spent time learning. We've invested money in. We want them to work because of those things. And we want them to work because we want to help people. But we have to be, I think, less certain in our convictions. And I think that's a hallmark of a scientific profession and the culture of a scientific profession is that we're comfortable with being wrong and it's not a um a black mark on your career if you once believed that and i'll go back to dry needling because we talked about that in the first part there if dry needling were all of a sudden to demonstrate in some really well done trials that it's remarkably effective in improving pain or disability or some outcome measure. I don't think Kyle or I would have any problem with pivoting and then saying, hey, we were wrong. Dry needling actually looks like it might be a great intervention for X, Y, or Z. And that's Speak not for a bad yourself. thing. <laughs> but that's something we should embrace. I'm just kidding. Is being okay with being wrong and learning from those kinds of things. And now, from what I see from uh, discussions, and I'll quote unquote discussions on social media and things like that, people often have a really hard time with that. So how can Mm. we as a profession on a person to person level, therapist to therapist, engage in those types of conversations and not have it sort of devolve, I guess, into these sort of ad hominem attacks and, and it just... Because I see that happen over and over again. So when you're, let's say you're involved in something that you're quote unquote passionate about, Mm. um, how do you engage in a thoughtful discussion with someone about it without it getting personal? Because oftentimes it gets personal. 
Yeah, and I th- I think that's natural. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of psychological research that applies here. The the primary one is the backfire effect, where if you take someone's very strongly held belief, you know, whatever it is, the world is flat, um, the sun orbits around the earth, um, dry needling works, cupping works, ultrasound's the greatest thing since sliced bread. I mean, there's a million different uh, statements we can insert here. If you take anyone's strongly held beliefs or worldview and you present contradictory data to that worldview, it's been very well characterized that that actually doesn't help change their viewpoint. It actually further strengthens them into their current or their previously held viewpoint. Uh, So in other words, it seems to be that our general psychological predisposition is to discount any contradictory evidence and almost look at that as a confirmation of our previous beliefs. And that's our psyche's desire to avoid discomfort and avoid cognitive dissonance, avoid that balancing of two contradictory ideas and try to figure out which one is potentially correct via logic, reason, or, or evidence. That's a really hard skill. I mean, that's even hard if you work on it. That's hard for philosophers. That's hard for people who debate. So that, I think that's, that's not a PT problem. That's a human problem. And we should acknowledge that. And I, I think secondarily, you know, if you're talking about, okay, I'm interacting with someone, whether that's interprofessionally, at the ground level, just person to person or on Twitter or on some type of social media or discussion board. The first thing is, is, is are you, are you in this discussion for some type of outcome, right? So this, this has happened to me in, in my career where the discussion is actually centered around a patient case. And so here the outcome is what is best for this patient. That's a totally different conversation than the theoretical 30,000 foot view. Let's go get a pint at the bar and kind of discuss whether or not we believe that therapeutic cabbage rubbing is a great way to treat lateral epicondylitis. Kenny can sell you this course later. He's got a trademark pending. $6,000. Uh, it's on sale now. I thought it was twelve k earlier, so sign me right up for that, please. Um, you know, is, is what's the goal here? And and Jason Silvernail, I think, has spoken very eloquently that is, to this, is that, you know, he wants his interactions to pass the reasonable test. And he's not arguing for the other person. He's not arguing to change their mind because he knows often this isn't going to be the case. He's actually arguing for the lurkers, for all the people watching, for all the people in the audience who may never even interact with you, but may send you a message behind the scenes, may never tweet, may never comment on the Facebook post, but they're literally, they're looking at the interaction between you and this other person. And I can tell you personally, like so many people have contacted me behind the scenes and said, you know, thank you so much. Like I, I learned so much just from that interaction you had with so-and-so, right? And I, so I think from that standpoint, we need to broaden our lens of what we think disagreement is for. And people always say, you know, oh, 100% of Facebook uh, discussions never change people's political views. You know, that's a funny meme going around. And of course not. But maybe that's not the point. Maybe you're actually discussing to lay out your viewpoint to better help the lurkers, to help the people who are in the middle ground, and to have them kind of see your logic. But then if you talk about it at the ground level, and I've reflected on this a lot because I think it's something, quite frankly, that I'm not very good at currently, is how do you be effective interpersonally with that person to start to nudge them towards the consideration of a different viewpoint, to broaden their lens of what's potentially actually going on or what your viewpoint is? And in this way, and I don't mean this to be demeaning at all, I think we need to look at professional interactions of this nature, especially when they're very sensitive, just as we would interacting with someone about their pain beliefs or about their health beliefs. And we need to look at presenting information 
under the lens of how do you actually change people's beliefs, right? And, you know, now we're very obsessed with motivational interviewing and therapeutic alliance and shared decision making and all these great concepts that I think we can actually overlay onto professional discussion and say, how do I interact with this person in a way that's not going to trigger them? Is going to present the information in a way that will be most receivable. How do I motivate them to consider my information? And quite frankly, this is very, very hard. And the nuance here is that I think we do, especially those of us who are inclined to skeptical inquiry and can be seen as cynics instead of skeptics, we need to get much better at this, I would say. Number one, people like Kenny, who's always so negative and tearing people's <laughs> belief systems down. He's a negative Nancy. People don't like him. For Honestly, prob- I, I don't like myself. I think I'm, I'm probably my least favorite person. That's but I think- something, because you've got a lot of negative people. And, and to, to close it out and then punt it to Kenny is, the paradox here is also, we need to create a culture of disagreement and a culture of accountability that actually allows for what has sometimes been called like Rappaport's rules, where like both people or at least one side of the house is assuming you can say whatever you want. Don't just take all the niceties out of it. Take the normal means of communication. Let's get to the point. Tell me your point. Let's parse this out logically and with evidence. Let's see what's empirical. Let's see if the argument makes sense. And let's figure this out. And we need to create those spaces as well. So I think there's, again, a long and a short game here that we need to consider. And I'd be curious to Kenny's thoughts because I'm sure he's offended from some of that. I'm disgusted and very negative right now. Um, Well, I think going back to what Kyle said earlier was that we are a young profession. We we don't have a strong culture background in scientific argument. It's not necessarily something that's facilitated, I think, in entry-level education. Uh, It's not something that I think people respond to well post-professionally because I don't think we're very good at arguing and presenting points in a way that might be non-threatening or or seen as um, not provocative. I think an interesting paper that a lot of PTs and PT students would be, you know, beneficial for them to read is Why Do Humans Reasons Reason Arguments for an Argumentative Theory by Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber. And you have to, before you engage in a conversation with someone, whether it be on therapeutic cabbage rubbing or are the New England Patriots a better football team than the Seattle Seahawks, you have to declare your intention. Are you arguing because you're pursuing a more clear picture of the truth? Or are you arguing for some other motivated reasoning, or are you arguing to, you know, affirm your viewpoint? And I think if you're arguing to just affirm your viewpoint and made it heard, that's not arguing in good faith. I think argument needs to be done for improved understanding. So if me and Kyle are talking to Mark and Callie about dry needling, we shouldn't go into it thinking that we are absolutely correct and we shouldn't be so strong in our convictions that there's not anything Mark and Callie could have reasonably done to convince us otherwise. So I think the Mm. important thing to keep in mind is we need to argue and debate and engage in good faith rather than just to prove that we're right. Yeah. And I think Scott, Scott asked Scott Morrison, who was the, uh, the moderator, chief moderator of our debate, and he did a great job of keeping me on the rails a couple of times, cut me off, which I'll give him full credit for. Very verbose. He, 
he asked that question, which I thought was brilliant of to both sides, what would it take to change your mind? And I, I think that's a great question that we could all self-reflect on and kind of ground ourselves in when we're discussing about things is what evidence, what reasoning, what would it take to change my mind on this point? And by trying to disprove that, our own point, Damn then we it, can Kyle. get to, to another place of understanding. And to your point, Kenny, I think that arguing in good faith is is not that people are purposely arguing in, in bad faith, so to speak. I don't want that to be a pejorative that people are purposely doing that, but as baseline, we as humans, we we are motivated reasoners, right? We're not good reasoners. And I think what happens sometimes is we get people talking on different wavelengths, and one person thinks we're having a logical, empirically based, uh, clearly based discussion, and another person is just talking more colloquially and kind of how they feel and what they've observed. And so you get this disconnect in wavelengths of what people are talking about. And I think that drives a lot of misunderstanding in our field and other fields. Yeah, and I think, you know, from what I'm getting from this conversation is that when it comes to having a reasoned conversation or an argument uh, with another PT or another healthcare practitioner, I think it's important to note that an argument isn't used as a negative here. That an argument is, is used as more of a positive because it can be a learning experience and you can kind of find out what's in the head of the person that you're speaking with. And so I think that's something to really take into account and that you have to kind of check your ego at the door and be a little open-minded. So if you're going in with a closed mind, then this is not an argument. This is not a debate. This is a, I'm going to talk because I want to hear myself talk. And no matter what you say, it's like a big F you because I don't really care. And that is certainly no way to have a professional discourse with anyone. And I think yeah. that's important. And I think the, but for me, I think it's really important to, to note that argument, which is traditionally viewed as a very negative word and a negative um, conversation, when you're talking about a scientific argument, it is not. And, and that's hard, you know. And, and I think you also have to be very self aware of what your intentions are going into a conversation or an argument or a scientific debate. And if you don't have that self-awareness as to, you know, I'm going into this, this is my viewpoint, but like Kenny said, I'm open to hearing the other person. If you're not open, then don't enter into the conversation because it's just going to be an exercise in frustration on both sides. Yeah, I'd, I would agree with that for sure. I mean, this is a, it's a very metacognitive skill. It, it's an emotional skill as well. I mean, I mean, things get terse, things get passionate, um, we're emotionally tied to the things that yeah. we've invested a lot of time and money to. So, you know, one thing I've had to deal with that was very instructive for me is, is reading editorials about physical therapists in the ICU that say physical therapy doesn't work, literally, right? And then having to go through that and try to fit, like, uh, you know, deal with my own emotional reaction to, you know, someone, A, misusing the term physical therapy as if it was an intervention and then just you know, kind of carte blanche saying that this doesn't work. And, and that was very instructive for me. And I think it's a the thing to communicate to people. This is a really hard thing to do. But to your point about open-mindedness, where I think there's some subtlety that we need to always acknowledge, is that um, Kenny and I both, uh, especially in some of our uh, uh, more in-depth online disagreements about dry needling and the evidence of acupuncture, we're accused of being closed-minded. And... The thing I, that I, mean, I think I, I don't know that those were the words that were used, 
but, but we'll go with that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how big of an explicit we want to put on your podcast here moving forward. But one of the things I always remind people is that if you are truly open-minded and you're coming in with no previous data or no previous preconceptions, you're not taking a Bayesian approach to this problem, you are equally open to both outcomes. And what most people say when they say you're, you should be more open-minded is they're saying you need to consider my position more strongly. Whereas most of the time when someone's being closed, called closed-minded, the other person is actually closed-minded to the juxtaposition to their current position. So open-mindedness is actually quite uh, two-tailed. In other words, you're going to take into account the fact that this potentially could be true, absolutely, or this could potentially not be true, absolutely. And that is true open-mindedness. That's hard. Uh, Absolutely. And then the flip side is that classic uh, quote that always says, you know, if your mind is too open, then it's like a garbage can. Anything can be tossed in, right? So there has to be a little bit of Bayesian kind of prior plausibility, what you already know about other things that where yeah. the argument is already tilted one way or another when you come in on any topic. Um, yeah. So I think that's always important to clarify. Cool. So Kenny, before we move on, do you have anything to add on that? Uh, just briefly, yeah, going off of open-mindedness and that. I think the reason people get so emotionally heated in, in conversations about uh, treatment or a, a way of practicing that someone might be critiquing or deconstructing, there's a lot of passion. There's a lot of investment in it. So it's hard not to take that personally. It's hard to, you know, divest ourselves from something we spent so much time and so much money working towards. But I think, again, if we we foster a culture of um, true open-mindedness and not being so strong in our convictions and being comfortable with being wrong, I don't think argument and debate would be seen as such a threat and such a uh, personal attack. Yeah, and I think it's also creating a culture of openness and curiosity and and creative possibilities beyond what we think in our own minds. And, and that is not an easy thing to do. I mean, you have to be, like I said before, you have to be really self-aware and, and you have to in yourself, you really have to be open and and not and check your ego at the door, and it's hard. It's a hard thing to do. Um, okay, so let's move on from this. So we had said this a couple of times, um, kind of talking about fads in physical therapy, what we tend to latch onto, why those fads become a fad. So I'd love to hear you guys kind of speak on, and we don't have to go into specifically what fads are, like specific fads, but why do you think that the profession by and large tends to latch on to some of this stuff? So either one of you can take it away. Kenny, you can go ahead and start. Well, I think I talked about earlier, um, we're all well-intentioned healthcare providers. We want to help people. We work with a lot of people who are in chronic pain, who are out of work, are limited in their role in society as a family member, uh, a caregiver, uh, their employment, that kind of thing. And we want to help those people achieve their goals. We want to help them get back to their role in society. And so we're constantly looking for something. 
Um, chronic pain and, and pain in general is one of the most difficult things to tackle. So it becomes alluring when a new treatment comes around with a charismatic um, you know, person supporting it and advertising it and discussing it and giving these alluring case studies or anecdotes of this person who had pain for 25 years and saw five different physical therapists, physicians, had three different back surgeries, chiropractors, acupuncturists, and then they came and they did this. And now they're walking pain-free for the first time. They're back to work. They're running their first 5K in 20 years. Those are very alluring stories. They're very attractive stories. And that's what we want for our patients. Um, so I think it becomes easy to jump on these stories that are sold. And going back to Lars's question about being a more science-based profession, we need to think more critically about these kind of stories. We need to think more critically about the evidence that is available for some of the, the courses that are available. Uh, we have to be not afraid to ask, okay, why, did, why do you believe that? Um, why did you say this certain intervention produced that effect? What's the evidence for that? So I think it's going back to that being grounded in basic science, being grounded in skepticism and not getting caught up in these alluring stories that are so attractive because of our, our intentions and our, our will to help people. Yeah, and, and I think they're also, when it comes to a marketing standpoint, it's sexy, it's buzzworthy, it gets people's attention. I mean, that's just like marketing 101, right? Yeah, I think novelty plays into this a lot. And um, Larry, Larry Benz has actually written about this a couple of times, and I'll, I'll give him credit here, where, you know, these new fads that come out into physical therapy we think are, are things that um, delineate us from other physical therapists and, and elevate our ability to market either directly to the public or other providers. And he actually calls it, I think, rightfully so, a race to the floor. These actually aren't delineating things. These are actually diluting factors that make the profession writ large actually less uh, elevated. And I think the factors that play into it are, are complicated at a global level just with how marketing and, and humans think and reason and are uh, attracted to things. And I also think there's the concept that, you know, the more time, money, and effort that you put into something, the more you're going to value it. And this has been well characterized, again, in psychological research, where the more people pay for things, the more time they have to put into getting something, the more effort it takes, the more painful it is. When they have that thing, all other things being equal, they're going to value it a whole bunch more. So if you talk about uh, certifications, weekend courses, uh, different, you know, routes of training and different schools of thought, there's a lot of time and energy and studying and, and, and thinking that goes around those things, however flawed they may be. And therefore, we've actually inflated their importance in the individual practitioner's mind because of how hard it was to obtain that thing. And then that makes it even harder to unlearn that thing individually and as a profession over time. And I think ultrasound, which wasn't that hard to learn, is a fantastic example of this. I mean, Kenny cited this in our debate that, uh, what year was that? Do you remember the year of that article, Kenny? It was fairly it was recent. 07 or 011. Uh, it's a PTJ article that studied the survey. Uh, it surveyed therapeutic ultrasound use in orthopedic specialty certified clinicians. And I think out of the 
the 45% of people that responded, it was somewhere between 70 and 80% that would use ultrasound for some indication, whether that's to increase tissue extensibility, decrease inflammation, or um, improve pain. And and these are the people that we hold in the highest regard in our profession, citing that, you know, I think the num- last number was less than 5 or 6% of the entire profession is board certified. Board certified orthopedic specialist seems to have a little bit more, uh, you know, diagnostic and differential uh, skill set than an average DPT student or average clinician. And yet, here are people that are still justifying the use of ultrasound based on mechanisms that we know are not even true. So I can't imagine what the cognitive barrier is to giving up something like dry needling that costs thousands of dollars, tons of time to learn. I'm not surprised that we're uh, failing to engage these people in conversation. Um, But I'm, I'm sure... I mean, it's complicated, right? We don't have good filters, which goes back to education. We don't have good vetting, very in-depth vetting process for our continuing education classes. Some states have just horrendously, horrendously perverse incentives where the continuing education market or companies are at a humongous advantage because you have to get so many CEUs that are quantified as a certain type of course that, I mean, they, they have... Basically, you know, it's like fishing with dynamite. People have to get courses and someone has to provide them. And I think that creates a really, really uh, difficult culture for these type of conversations. Because now if you're talking about someone who owns a continuing education company or teaches these type of classes, again, as Kenny and I said in our debate, I don't ever expect that person to get on stage with us and ever entertain the idea that this isn't useful or it doesn't work. And that's not to their fault. Their, their livelihood depends on it. That would be like me getting up and saying physical therapy is a waste of time. No one should get it. Let's get rid of the profession. My goodness, I quit tomorrow, right? We're not, that's not going to happen. And I don't have a good answer for how we solve this because there's, it just elucid. It's, I think, is a byproduct of a lot of issues instead of being an issue itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, agree from, with that. From education to culture. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, you know, in the end, fads come and go as history shows us. So I you know, time will tell on on what's a fad today and what will what will be there five years from now. So we will see. All right, so I want to move on to a couple of questions and I want like quick answers here. So try and like control yourselves a little bit. Oh goodness. Keep keep the answers quick. Think about it, because we're gonna we're gonna kind of move through these pretty quick. So um, one is from a student uh, here in New York, actually, Mike Maker, and he said, what drove uh, you to become so passionate about the science behind PT? Uh, I'll take that one first. I think that one's actually pretty simple for myself is that I, I, I came from a school in a line of study that was very scientifically inclined. I majored in neuroscience in undergrad and went, went to a, was lucky to go to a small liberal arts school where um, discourse and discussion were the norm. Reading scientific papers were the norm. Ripping them apart was the norm. Presenting your argument was the norm. Splitting the class on two sides and talking about something was absolutely the norm. So I think it grew from there uh, as a foundation. And then just uh, my curiosity on the why. I always ask a lot of why questions, and I always have. And I think those two things together kind of lended itself to a spirit of inquiry where I was just always wanting to figure out the why and go a little bit deeper on the things that we do and uh, why they are how they are. Fair enough. Good quality. Okay, go ahead, Kenny. What's your answer to that? 
Yeah, I think it's just curiosity. I was lucky to have a few influential people at some pivotal times in my education at uh, Northeastern University when I was going through physical therapy school. Stumbled upon a few vocal people on social media who were presenting things that were pretty disparate to what I was learning in school. And I was, I was curious as to why there was such a disconnect between some of the things that I was learning for the boards to become licensed as a physical therapist and seeing how strongly these things were deconstructed by people who were active with uh, blogs or on message boards or on Twitter. So I think I just found the right people at the right time that really kind of sparked my, my interest in improving my understanding of why I do what I do, what I'm actually doing when I, I do an intervention or perform a certain thing. So I think my, my just exposure to certain people really helped. Great. All right. Next question from Will Butler. What is your greatest professional frustration? Keep it short. Go ahead, Kenny. I think a, um, my greatest professional frustration is the quick acceptance of things to be true, to be certain in things where there should be uncertainty and there should be a little bit of, of doubt there. So I think the lack of a true skepticism in the profession, a true culture of skepticism in the profession is one of my biggest frustrations. Kyle? I, I would say for me, and again, to be out of nature a little bit with some positivity, is um, is this chip on the shoulder that physical therapists have that um, where we're always comparing ourselves to physicians or other advanced practice providers. And I think that blinds us to opening our lens and being able to collaborate and take on the actual meaningful roles that we can. And I, I, I just think that that little man syndrome, I'll call it, or that Napoleon syndrome, I think really hinders us. And that really frustrates me that we can't pull off the blinders and have a broader view and collaborate in a meaningful way. Because my sense is, my experience is, other people in healthcare are just yearning for physical therapist input. And once they get it, they want more of it. Okay. All right. So two more questions. Um, before we get to the last question, which is kind of a question I ask all of my guests at the end, I'll ask this one because this question came up a lot on social media, and it's more about the relationship between the two of you, sort of the bromance situation. So when did that start, and did you know it like when you first met? I don't, well, I don't believe in love at first sight, um, but I do believe in love at first tweet, and uh, I can, I can say. Uh, maybe a little bit sentimentally that the, the first time Kenny and I interacted on Twitter, um, I, kn I knew this was going to be something special. Yeah. My, my favorite thing when, uh, Kyle and I are actually together in person, I like to tell everyone we met on the internet and just leave it at that. <laughs> so, which is absolutely true. Um, but, but joking aside, we, we did meet on Twitter. Um, we both worked on Soma simple for a while and then actually got actively engaged, um, which, uh, regardless of what you've heard about, it was absolutely career and life changing for me, the interactions on those forums. And I would encourage people to go to the archives and see the type of discussions that have been had there. 
uh, and then we met at a CSM when Kenny was still a student. We just kept in touch and started jamming and talking, as we say. And uh, he's turned out to be a pretty good thinker. So, you know, I've kept him around on my contact list and haven't blocked him <laughs> on Twitter yet. Kenny, you should feel, you should feel so honored. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite honored. It was, uh, we were in a, uh, an acute care session, probably on early mobility or something. And we were live tweeting it and kind of tweeting at each other and realized we were actually sitting in the same row. And then Kyle had a little less facial hair then. So I was more apt to engage with him as opposed to kind of step back leerily. So yeah, like the situation that's happening now is a little different than it was a couple of years ago, for sure. Luckily no. for the listeners, this is a podcast and not a, a talk show. Yeah. Well, if it were a talk show, I would have some requirements. So that might be a way to, like, tame this whole situation here. Okay. So last question. It's, and Sandy Hilton kind of asked the same question um, online. But the last question that I always like to ask all of my guests is, knowing uh, what you know now and where you are in your career, what advice would you give, give yourself as a new grad? Mm. So either one of you can take it first. Doesn't matter to me. I'll I'll start with that. Um, you know, I think the first thing I'll say to to make it a little personal, which I think always helps to give a little story, is I'm, I really struggled as a physical therapist for my first two to three years. Uh, I would say I was continually in a perpetual professional existential crisis, uh, just questioning what I was doing. Was I what I was I competent? Will I ever get there? And I think the thing that really grounded it for me um, with the guidance from a lot of remote mentors was the fact that there's, you're never going to get there, right? And I think because you go through an education system where there's always another semester, there's a graduation, you get there. As a DPT student, I, can, I understand and I'm sympathetic to like, I graduate, I'm a physical therapist, I'm there, let's do this, I want to be this thing. And you know, I've been doing this for seven years now, and I feel like I know less than I did when I started. It's so uncertain. We're dealing with human beings in a complex environment with the worst of distresses, whether it's a teenage girl who tore her ACL or someone who's critically ill in the ICU or someone who's in home health. We're seeing people at their absolute most distressing moments in a convoluted system with perverse incentives and ridiculous rules and it's just really complicated so i think the first thing was just letting in that uncertainty and being okay with the fact that you're never there you're always improving you're always learning there's always something different to consider and welcoming that journey and i, I uh picture surfing you've, you've got to be able to ride that wave and those two things i think really grounded me to be open to growing and to make sure that i wasn't getting stuck in ruts and really to me revitalized my practice, really did. That openness to uncertainty just made every day so much more interesting because guess what? Every patient case is absolutely, if you're open to it, totally different than anything else you've ever seen. And there's not a lot of people that can say that because we do a human endeavor. And I think that's the real power of our profession if you can get down to that foundation and and step away from all the other horrible things that you have to deal with on a daily basis, the documentation, the billing, yada, yada, yada. I could go on for an entire podcast about all the horrible things we have to encounter every day. Go ahead, Kenny. I think I might still qualify as a new grad, being uh, graduated in 2014. But I think um, 
Jason Silvernail kind of said it well about stop worrying about things you can't control and freeing yourself from the responsibility of a patient's outcome. Because as Kyle said, you can throw yourself into this existential crisis of what am I doing? Am I making a difference? And that whole idea of pushing the rock up the hill every day just to see it fall back down. And you can think of that as this kind of Sisyphean task where you're condemned to just working hard every day just to watch it start all over. But you can commit yourself to thinking that um, I'm pushing this rock up the hill as best I can. I'm learning better ways to push this rock up the hill and being comfortable that you're providing your best to each person each day and understanding that you play a very small role in your patient's picture. There's uh, innumerable things that are going on in that individual's life and you are in control of such a minuscule amount and you'll drive yourself crazy thinking that you can control 100% of it and you can cure their chronic pain you can get them back to work, you can fix the, the woes that they're having. So I think the most important thing to keep in mind as a new grad is just what Jason Silvernail says, freeing your responsibility for the outcome of the clinical encounter and freeing your patients from the blame as well. So I think that's the, the biggest takeaway for me as I'm still in that new grad phase and something I would like people to keep in mind whether they're a new grad or they're 20 years out. Yeah, and, and I thank you for your honesty and openness to answer that question because I think that's such great advice to any student and any new grad. So thank you so much. And um, of course, thank you guys for coming on. I think these two podcasts were really great and I think people get a lot out of it. So thanks for coming on. Anytime. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having us. Anytime. And everybody, thanks so much for listening. And again, if you missed part one, go back and listen to it because it was also really good. Uh, thanks to Kyle and Kenny. And everyone have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.